Right before fall break, the last story we looked at was a great story about David using his power as the king to bring tremendous blessing to someone who had no ability to, um, to be blessed, which was this guy Mephibosheth. It's an amazing story. Um, I did podcast that message if you didn't get to hear it and you want to hear it. This guy Mephibosheth, Mephibosheth who's like a traitor, Jonathan's son, who the king, David, grants him this great privilege of being able to eat at the king's table like a royal son forever. An amazing picture of David using his power as a king to bless. Tonight, we come to a really ugly, horrible story. story of David and Bathsheba. Not a story about an affair, a story about rape. A story about taking advantage of the weak. And it's, a, it's an ugly story. But all stories, you know, of, of sort of taking advantage and flaunting the rules are ugly stories. And yet, you know, if you're at all like me, I've never met a rule that I liked. I've never met a rule I liked. Rules are made to be broken, right? Rules are made to be pushed against. We all feel that the rules shouldn't apply to us unless we're one of those people who feels like, we're really good at manipulating the rules, and so it's great to have rules because other people have to figure out how to live under them, but we can figure out ways around them and ways that they can benefit us. Saw this uh, story that Disney had to change their policy. Did you guys go to Disney over fall break? Anybody? No? Disney had to change their policy about people with disabilities and how they get access to rides. Did you hear about this? Back in May, there was an article in the New York Post Rich Manhattan moms hire handicapped tour guides so that kids can cut lines at Disney World. Did you know about this? The black market Disney guides run $130 an hour or $1,000 for an eight-hour day. Here's a quote. My daughter waited one minute to get on It's a Small World. The other kids had to wait two and a half hours, crowed one mom who hired a disabled guide through Dream Tours Florida. You can go to Disney without a tour concierge, or you can't go to Disney without a tour concierge, she sniffed. This is how the 1% does Disney. The woman said she hired a Dream Tours guide to escort her, her husband, and their one-year-old son and five-year-old daughter through the park in a motorized scooter with a handicap sign on it. The group was sent straight to an auxiliary entrance at the front of each attraction. So, last week, Disney had to change the policy so that they could sort of get around this situation. Is that unbelievable? Unbelievable. Yeah. Now some of you are like, man, why didn't I think of that? <sighs> Never met a rule that I liked. And yet at some point we all recognize that a life without rules is just dreadful. And when we come to a story like this, all of a sudden, you know, just sort of smiling at little, you know, rule infractions takes on a much more serious tone. When we see a king who does whatever the heck he wants. Let's read this story. It may be a familiar story to you. Uh, if it is, read it with us again. If it's not, listen to this. This is God's word. Second Samuel chapter 11. If you don't have a Bible, or sorry, if you don't have um, a Bible, we got them all, right? Yeah. So never mind. 2 Samuel chapter 11. 2 Samuel 11. In the spring, at the time when kings go off to war, David sent Joab out with the king's men and the whole Israelite army 
they destroyed the Ammonites and besieged Rabbah. But David remained in Jerusalem. One evening, David got up from his bed and walked around on the roof of the palace. From the roof, he saw a woman bathing. The woman was very beautiful, and David sent someone to find out about her. The man said, she is Bathsheba, the daughter of Eliam and the wife of Uriah the Hittite. Then David sent messengers to get her. She came to him, and he slept with her. Now she was purifying herself from her monthly uncleanness. Then she went back home. The woman conceived and sent word to David, saying, I am pregnant. So David sent this word to Joab, send me Uriah the Hittite. And Joab sent him to David. This is her husband. When Uriah came to him, David asked him how Joab was, how the soldiers were, how the war was going. Then David said to Uriah, go down to your house and wash your feet. So Uriah left the palace, and a gift from the king was sent after him. But Uriah slept at the entrance to the palace with all his master's servants and did not go to his own house. David was told, Uriah did not go home. So he asked Uriah, haven't you just come from a military campaign? Why didn't you go home? Uriah said to David, the ark of the covenant and Israel and Judah are staying in tents. And my commander Joab and my Lord's men are camped in the open country. How can I go to my house to eat and drink and make love to my wife? As surely as you live, I will not do such a thing. Then David said to him, stay here one more day and tomorrow I will send you back. So Uriah remained in Jerusalem that day and the next. At David's invitation, he ate and drank with him and David made him drunk. But in the evening, Uriah went out to sleep on his mat among his master's servants. He did not go home. In the morning, David wrote a letter to Joab and sent it with Uriah. In it, he wrote, put Uriah out in front where the fighting is fiercest. Then withdraw from him so he will be struck down and die. So while Joab had the city under siege, he put Uriah at a place where he knew the strongest defenders were. When the men of the city came out and fought against Joab, some of the men in David's army fell. Moreover, Uriah the Hittite died. Joab sent David a full account of the battle. He instructed the messenger, when you've finished giving the king this account of the battle, the king's anger may flare up and he may ask you, why did you get so close to the city to fight? Didn't you know they would shoot down arrows from the wall? Who killed Abimelech, son of Jerubbesheth? Didn't a woman drop an upper millstone on him from the wall so that he died in Thebes? Why did you get so close to the wall? If he asks you this, then say to him, Moreover, your servant Uriah the Hittite is dead. The messenger set out, and when he arrived, he told David everything Joab had sent him to say. The messenger said to David, The men overpowered us and came out against us in the open, but we drove them back to the entrance of the city gate. Then the archers shot arrows at our servants from the wall, and some of the king's men, king's men died. Moreover, your servant Uriah the Hittite is dead. David told the messenger, Say this to Joab, Don't let this upset you. The sword devours one as well as another. Press the attack against the city and destroy it. Say this to encourage Joab. When Uriah's wife heard that her husband was dead, she mourned for him. After the time of mourning was over, David had her brought to his house, and she became his wife and bore him a son. But the thing David had done displeased the Lord. 
Let's pray together. Lord, we do pray that you would help us as we study this portion of your holy word, that we would not only see David's sin, but even see ourselves. And most importantly, we'd see your grace. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. It's an ugly story, isn't it? Right? The king does what the king wants. And I'll say starting off, this is a very sobering passage. And I think, you know, the last time I preached on this passage was maybe 2008. And it's harder for me to preach this time. Because honestly, the longer I've been working as a pastor, the more and more stories I know and stories I hear of true Christians who do the most unspeakable evil things. And when we think about this story, I think one of the things you have to see right off the bat is we can't explain this passage away. I know I probably heard this story as a child and thought, oh, you know, this is like some illicit love affair or, you know, they fell in love. That's not what this story is about at all. This isn't a story about an illicit love affair. Bathsheba doesn't even have a name in this story. She has no dignity whatsoever. She's taken advantage of. Even the way the story is narrated brings out how little she was valued. Right? This is an ugly story. But David is a man after God's own heart. And as you come to a story like this, you've got to like, try to make sense of that. And honestly... I think that a lot of Christians and people outside the church, but I'm particularly talking to those of you who would identify yourself as a Christian, are often very naive about how evil even true Christians can be. You can't just say, well, you know, these people aren't, aren't believers, therefore they do horrible things. No, Christians do horrible things. It shouldn't be that way. But this story in the Bible, David the king, who at one time can use his power to bless Mephibosheth, one who by all rights should have been put to death as a threat to David's kingdom. He gets to eat at the king's table forever like a royal son, but Bathsheba gets used and discarded. We need to see that the Bible is a realistic book that does not whitewash its heroes. There's no hero in the Bible that doesn't fall short at some point. What do you think about David? How do you think about King David? In this story, he's closer to Saddam than he is to Billy Graham. And that's what he's like at times. Just look at how this story unfolds. I'll show you how the text shows us this very thing. Scent is the key word in this story. And scent is an interesting word. It appears all through the Hebrew of this text. Scent is a word that speaks of kingly authority and power. Throughout this story, people are sent this way and that way. People are sent for and they are brought here and they're sent there and they're sent there. It's like David the king using everybody around him like chess pieces. And maybe you felt like that sometimes. Maybe you've been used like that sometimes. 
The king sends people this way and that. And it starts off here in verse 1, making very clear that you understand things are not quite right. In the spring, it says, at the time when kings go off to war, a very important detail, Joab sent, there's the first use of this word, Joab, he's the general, he sends Joab out with the king's men and the whole Israelite army. They do battle with these different people, and it says significantly at the end of verse 1, but David remained in Jerusalem. It's subtle, but already you're seeing the king is doing what the king wants. He's no longer with the people. And it's interesting, later you find out from Uriah's word that the Ark of the Covenant is there in battle. And the king's armies are camped. Do you remember the story we talked about a few weeks ago where David said, I want to build a house for God because it's not right that the Ark of the Covenant which represents God himself. It's not right that the Ark of the Covenant be in a tent while I'm living in a palace. So you remember he said, I wanted to build a palace. I want to build a a temple for God because I'm living in a palace. God should have a palace. And God comes to Nathan the prophet that night and says, I didn't ask to be built a palace. I'm content to live in a tent as long as my people are living in tents. But David the king is no longer content to be in a tent with his people. At the time when the kings should be at war, David is hanging out at the palace and he's sending others to do the work. Even God himself in the Ark of the Covenant. But David's not part of that. Then David sees her. He wants her for himself. And that settles it. Right? He sees this woman bathing. She's beautiful. He sends somebody to find out about her. The man says her name. This is the only time you hear her name. David never utters her name. He never has the, 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 the dignity to even name her. You get, even in the way the story's narrated, how cheaply she is valued. This guy says she's Bathsheba, the daughter of Iliam, and significantly the wife of Uriah the Hittite. Now, you may not know this yet. When we get to the end of this series on the life of David, I'm going to talk about this passage about David's mighty men. It appears at the end of 2 Samuel, but it actually chronologically takes place earlier. The significance of that story, the mighty men are like David's trusted core warriors, The ones who would lay down their life for him. Uriah the Hittite is one of those mighty men. Uriah the Hittite is one of these men that would have laid down their life for him. And David just takes his wife and does whatever he wants with her. It doesn't matter that she's the wife of one of his loyal mighty men. It doesn't matter that she's bathing because she's obeying the ceremonial law for ritual period or ritual purity after her period, the king sleeps with her, and then he sends her back. He doesn't invite her to live with him and to benefit from the palace and life in the palace. That happens later, only when he's trying to cover for himself. At first, he brings her, he sleeps with her, he sends her back. He discards her, right? Again, she's not named. David treats her as subhuman, And the story brings it out in the way they tell the story. She literally says two words in the Hebrew, I pregnant. Two words. That's all we hear from her. We don't hear anything about her feelings, her personality. She's rendered completely one-dimensionally because that's how David himself sees her. The only thing that matters is that she's beautiful. It's the only thing that we know about her, description of her. It's a horrible Story. Again, this is not about an affair. 
She's not complicit in this at all. There's nothing in the text that says that she consented to this. This is the powerful taking advantage of the weak. And then the cover-up begins in verse 6. David sends word to his general, send me Uriah the Hittite. So Joab sends Uriah back to David, back to Jerusalem. And David, you know, starts out, this is, it's like grotesque. Have you ever met with somebody and you know there's like this huge issue that needs to be talked about and they're just doing small talk? That's verse 7. Small talk. Yeah, how's it going? How's the war going? How's Joab? Hey, why don't you go hang out with your, with your wife at your house? The wash your feet is probably a euphemism for some kind of uh, sexual thing. Um, we know that because later he says, I could never go down and refresh myself and have sex with my wife, right? Uriah the Hittite understands what David is offering him. As a matter of fact, you could even say David is commanding him and he, because of his loyalty, actually defies the king's order. Uriah, David feels like if I can bring Uriah back, if I can get him to go sleep with his wife, then I'll be able to cover this. Why? Well, this is the days before paternity tests and DNA and all that kind of stuff. So if he can bring back her husband quick enough and get him to lay with his wife, then he's going to be able to cover his tracks. What he didn't count on, what he didn't count on, was Bathsheba's womb. <laughs> the king directs everybody, but he had no control over whether or not she would get pregnant. And he has no control over the integrity of Uriah the Hittite. Right? Uriah's words should have cut David to the heart. They don't. They don't. So what does David do next? He gets him drunk. It's a long history of using alcohol to overcome people's convictions. Yeah, you know about this. You're in college, right? And you were in high school. Yeah. So the Bible, David does the same thing. He feels like if I can get him drunk, then maybe he'll forget his convictions or they'll be weakened somewhat, and then he'll go back and he'll lay with his wife. But he doesn't. He still doesn't. So then he's got to come up with another plan. And this is unbelievable. He sends a letter, and he sends the letter by way of Uriah the Hittite. He gives Uriah the Hittite a letter and says, deliver this to Joab, your commanding general. And in the letter, David tells him, tells Joab what to do to have Uriah the Hittite, his loyal, mighty man, killed. Shame, it's just shameless. Unbelievable. And then David and Joab covering it up. By making it seem like Joab was careless. Did you pick up on that? See, you know, Uriah, or David, or no, Joab says, look, when you, the messenger, go back and tell David what's happened, he might flip out on you. Why? Because David is a good general. He knows that you don't get all of your men too close to the city gates because you remember that guy that had the millstone dropped on his head? You know, you don't go right up to the gates. You've seen Monty Python, right? You don't get close, you know, to the, to the, uh, to the French castle, you know, and they might fart in your general direction, right? You know, all that kind of thing, right? No, this is true. This is what happens. If you get too close to the castle, then all, the, then all your people are going to be killed. And so Joab has to pretend that he was careless, and he has to take the blame so that David will be covered. Do you see that? 
And then, the way this ends, the utter shamelessness of David is extraordinary. And this is the thing. When you deal with people that are caught in sin like this, the thing that will shock you most likely will be the utter shamelessness of the cover-up. Because once you go down a path like this, it just builds and builds and builds, and you get to a point where sin is heaped upon sin. And it finally ends this way. Look in verse 25. David said to the messenger, say this to Joab, don't let this upset you, is how the uh, ESV has it. But literally, in the Hebrew, it says, don't let this be evil in your eyes. Don't let this be evil in your eyes. The sword devours one as well as another. In other words, hey, this is kind of how it goes in war. People die. Say this to encourage Joab. But look at verse 27, the last words. Literally in the Hebrew says, but the thing David had done was evil in the eyes of the Lord. Verse 25, David says to Joab, don't let this be evil in your eyes. But the last words are God's words. This thing you have done is evil in my eyes. And we're going to talk next week about what God is going to do about this. But that's the story. It's a despicable story, isn't it? And we should be sobered by this picture of how sin works in our lives and in our world. One of the old Puritans had this great quote I've always loved. He said, first we practice sin, then we defend it. And then we boast in it. And that's the picture you see here, isn't it? The essence of sin, honestly. You know, sometimes people say, well, you know, we don't want to offend people outside the Christian faith and use this word sin. A lot of people are uncomfortable with that word. But guys, the essence of sin, whether you like the word or not, is man substituting himself or herself for God. That's it. Playing God is the heart of what the Bible means by sin. David is playing God in how he treats Bathsheba. Again, the word sent is a word of power. I have power to send people this way and that way to do my will. Even Uriah's speech, which should have cut David to the heart, convicted him of his hypocrisy. Fails to move David. I mean, Uriah the Hittite is so honorable. He says to David, again, the Ark of the Covenant is in a tent. And David, you know, he composed that amazing prayer when he was reminded by God that my Ark, I'm in a tent and I don't need a palace because I'm content to be in a tent as long as my people are in a tent. God had said, I want to put you first. And David utters this amazing prayer of thanksgiving that is the basis for that hymn, Amazing Grace, that you probably know. Amazing. And yet here, here, he could care less. He could care less. He no longer is a steward serving God by bearing the responsibility of being king. Now he's playing God. He's playing God. He feels he's above the law and beyond the criticism of anyone. And here's the thing. Even though this is a really ugly picture, we all wish at one level that we could have this kind of freedom. Aren't there times when you just wish that you could rule the world, at least your little portion of it? 
Surely you would know better what to do for you. But the Bible shows us sin is insane. Now, it's interesting. The way the Bible shows us that sin is insane, that it is a a breaking away of our humanity, is through the technique of irony. And irony is everywhere in this story. Passages dripping with irony. Here, I'll just hit a few of them for you. Bathsheba is bathing, the text says, to cleanse herself ritually after her period in accordance with the law. But David, who as the king is to honor the law above all things, has no concern for the law. She's bathing to be ritually clean, and he does something that's so much more unclean, taking her for himself. Uriah the Hittite is the only faithful Israelite in the whole chapter. He's the only one who honors God and his ways, who puts the Ark of the Covenant and God himself above everything. As a matter of fact, Uriah's disobedience to David's command to go back to be with his wife is motivated by true loyalty. How crazy. The king of Israel is to be the one who lives to do the will of God. And yet, Uriah the Hittite is the only one that seems to care about that. And again, David's usual practice, it seems, from verse 20, was to be careful and to never let his soldiers be needlessly put in harm's way. But he could care less about putting Uriah the Hittite and the other Israelites that got killed from going too close. He could care less about them. But here's the thing. We cannot distance ourselves from David. When I was your age, I stumbled upon a book in a used bookstore up in Boston. This guy, Robert Murray McShane, it impacted me powerfully because I named my oldest son Cooper McShane. And um, it's a a great book to read, this guy, Robert Murray McShane. I knew when I found it that um, I didn't know anything about this guy, but it was a cool red old book. It was $2.50. It was in the basement bookstore of this place in Boston, the Old South Church, where George Whitfield had preached. It was just such a cool setting. You just wanted to buy a cool old book there. And I saw that the guy was Presbyterian. I wasn't Presbyterian at that time, but I knew some people that were, and they seemed like nice people. Uh, And I also noticed, just from looking at the book a little bit, that he had died when he was 30. And I thought, well... He must have done something if they wrote a book about him, and he died when he was 30. So based upon that, I bought the book. I started reading the book, and it really was a life-changing book because I saw just this longing for holiness in this book like I'd never tasted. But I've never gotten over this this one quote. Um, And and actually, it was a place, you know, most of the book is basically his prayer journal that after he died, one of his friends edited it and put it out. And at one point in one of his prayers, he prays, Lord, teach me that the sins or the seeds of all sins are in my heart and all the more dangerously if I do not see them. Do you believe that? That the seeds of all sins are in your heart and all the more dangerously if you do not see them. Listen, I can just tell you, Story after story of students who came to Belmont convinced that they would never do this and they would never do that. And I've been there after they've done this and they've done that. 
And it's not just that they've done things that they were ashamed of. It's that it destroyed their righteousness that they were trusting in. Felt like, well, I know other people do this and that, but I would never do that. And then what do you do when you do? The seeds of all sins are in your heart. And all the more dangerously, if you do not see them, there is nothing, there is no temptation that is beyond you. There is no one in this room that is beyond manipulation, murder, all kinds of stuff. And probably, probably it's already going on in your life at some level. Now, often, often we call it by nicer names. Remember a friend of mine um, named Rod worked with him at a church, and I remember him telling me about going to counseling. And uh, if you've ever been to counseling, you know that counselors have a way of putting a, a sort of a, a fine point on things where we want to just leave things kind of blurry sometimes. And uh, my friend Rod was talking to her, and he was pretty freely throwing around the term people pleaser. Like, you know, I think I've got this problem with being a people pleaser. And after, after a little while, the counselor sort of like, sort of gave him like a right hook, you know, right hook, and uh, said, um, you know, you're really comfortable using that phrase people pleaser. Would it, would it be okay if we, you know, maybe call it what it really is? Would that be okay? You should never say that. When a counselor says that, you should never say that. He said, okay. She said, why don't we just say that, that you prostitute yourself to everyone in your life? That's what you do. You may want to call it being a people pleaser. It's nice. We like that. But you're prostituting yourself to everybody in your life. You're literally selling the glory of God that he's put in you and on you, and you're discarding it left and right, just to get people to like you. We do this kind of stuff all the time. We call them respectable sins. The Bible calls them damnable sins. And Jesus came to die for damnable sins. He did. He didn't just die so that you could quit being a people pleaser. He died because you're a murderer and you're full of lust and rage, and so am I. And it doesn't help to pretend that it was otherwise. Stories like this are in the Bible, not so you can say, oh, look at him. Boy, I'm glad I'm not like him. Stories like this are in the Bible so that you can say, I find myself in that story. Do you know how I know that? Because Psalm 51 is in the Bible. We're going to look at this next week. When David finally comes to his senses, he doesn't just tell us his testimony. He writes a song about it and invites us to sing it and to use those words as our words. We're not supposed to distance ourselves from this because God put his confession in the Psalms so that we could sing it. We're not to distance ourselves from this story. We're supposed to find ourselves in it. Our hope is not in playing God. Our hope is not in getting to play God. But guys, our hope is in having a God who became a man and died as a man in the place of those who try to play God. See, I said the heart of sin is man substituting himself for God, but the heart of the gospel is God substituting himself for man. But not just any man, not just any woman, but people who do damnable things. Right? This is Paul's point in Romans 5. You know, 
Very rarely will someone die for somebody else, Paul says. Though for a good man, someone might possibly dare to die. But God demonstrates his love for us in this, that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. Our hope is not in sending people to do our bidding and getting to direct people like chess pieces so that our life can come about the way we want it to come about. Our hope is in the one who came himself to die rather than sitting up on his throne and shouting down instructions. Aren't you so glad that God didn't just shout down from heaven and tell us what to do? You know that amazing parable where Jesus talks about, you know, the, the, the guy that owns the field, the, the vineyard, and he sends his servants to collect the rent, and they keep beating him up, and finally he sends his son, and what does he do? What do the tenants do to his son? They kill him. That's what Jesus understood his mission to be, not to stay at a distance and shout out some advice from a place of ease and a place of privilege and power, but to humble himself like a man and take death on a cross. Jesus died for real damnable sins. Don't minimize your sin. If you minimize your sin, you minimize the gospel and you minimize the God of the gospel. So here's our, here's our, our last thing to think about. Who is your king? Like, how does this relate to you as college students? You may feel like, well, I'm not a king. I don't get to rule. But let me just tell you this. For many of you, this is the first time in your life that you actually do get to make a lot of decisions about how you live your life, how you spend your time, how you spend your money, what you eat, when you go to bed. Now, maybe some of you started doing some of that in high school, but college, like, there's nobody looking over your shoulder anymore. Well, maybe some of you talk to your parents every day. That's another issue we should talk about over coffee. But, no, seriously, this is the time when you kind of have freedom, right? Now, of course, there are certain kings in your life. We call them professors and bosses, and you've got to navigate around them. But for a lot of you, like the key to this period in your life is trying to figure out how to not how to not sort of fall afoul of, of these, these princes and these kings so that I can do whatever I want as much as I possibly can. And if you can figure out how to navigate around those authorities like professors and your parents, um, you can pretty much be a king in a sense at this point in your life. But here's what this passage is screaming to us. Life is not found in you being your own king. And the more you live... For being the king, the more disconnected from your humanity you become. Do you see that? Do you see the way David, his humanity disappears as this story goes on and on and on? First he sins, then he lies, and he covers it up, and he manipulates, and finally he murders. He breaks every one of the Ten Commandments here, every one of them, as he devolves into something less than human. He starts out treating Bathsheba like she's subhuman, and he becomes subhuman himself. And it's always that way. Don't be naive. If you're living for being your own king, it will come back to haunt you. You might think that's not very relevant to you, but listen. Your college-educated people, your gifted people, like it or not, you will have more power one day. You will have power like you can't even imagine right now. I'm just telling you this because I'm 49 years old and I've been where you've been. There will be times when you have power, you have money, 
You have the opportunity to do all kinds of things. And you've got to learn now that being free to do whatever you want is not what life's about. Because one day, you'll have enough money to insulate yourselves from all kinds of things that would try to push back against that. Francis Schaeffer said one time that people in America are living for personal peace and affluence. Basically, we want to be left alone, and we want to have enough money to guarantee that we'll be left alone. And for a lot of you with a graduate uh, degree from Belmont, unless you go into the music business, you will eventually have enough money to do that. Sorry, I can't, I couldn't, uh, you know, it's probably true. The way to handle power well is to be set free from your lust to be king of your life. And the only way you're going to find your life is in knowing the king who became a man to die in your place. And the only way you'll find your life's purpose is in emulating him. It's so rare to see power used well in our world. I ran across this story today. It just blew me away. Do you know about the Mo Ibrahim Prize? This is the most valuable prize. You think the Nobel Prize, you get a lot of money. The Mo Ibrahim Prize is the most valuable prize in the world. And it went unawarded again this year. Five million dollars plus $200,000 a year for the rest of your life. Do you know what you have to do? to qualify for this award. You have to be a king or a leader of an African nation and you have to step down when your elected term is over. That's all you have to do. You basically have to get elected and then when your term is over, you have to step down. The award's been going on you know, for a few years, since about 2007, 2008, now the third time that there's been no one to give it to. It's such a rare thing to see people with power give it away. No one would leave their throne for $5 million and $200,000 a year for the rest of their life. They couldn't find anybody who did it. But we have a king who left his throne not for $5 million, but for a cross. Do you understand how amazing the gospel is? Let's sing the doxology. How about we? Let's stand.